Well, hey friends, welcome to the Dear Family Courts podcast. My name is Lisa Welter and I'm your host this week. Guys, it has been a while. Thanksgiving has come and gone and you may have noticed we've slowed down on our podcast episodes recently. Um, For me, I'm also working on a doctorate. I know that really isn't a great excuse, but holy cow, um, I'm rounding the bend of my first year and wrote a 60-page paper over the last two months and it has kind of consumed every day of every hour during the week. And uh, and so that's just what I've been working on, if you guys care to know. I do want to share today a, a message specifically to the Christian community. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you uh, probably should stay tuned and listen to this conversation. If you are not, I would encourage you to listen as well and give reflection to whether or not this is taking place in your own faith community, because I think there's room for a lot of people in this space when we think about justice. This paper that I've been writing has been quite the beast. I've been writing it on transformative family mediation and the integration of biblical inspiration connected to uh, the work that Jen and I have been doing. And if you're a pastor, if you are someone who just relates to the Christian faith, you're a follower of Jesus, this message should really be inspiring and interesting to you, but it also has a bite to it. And this is something I've been wrestling through for the past two months as I've been drafting this particular doctoral paper, and I I wanted to share it with you all today. I have been thinking about this idea of justice for families for, boy, a really long time since I engaged in this uh, personally in the courts. And one of the areas of that has been a problem for me, I actually don't think I brought it up to you in any of the podcasts, is I was really hurt by an experience in the courts. My parents invited congregational members to be a part of the proceedings in the court, and that really bothered me. This was a church I had grown up as a childhood or in my in my childhood years it was a place of safety for me and then it turned into an us and them uh, circumstance it was really painful to have people that were in my life rallying for me in some of my darkest days now um, rallying against me um, based on a he said and she said a kind of an experience and I landed on a passage in first Corinthians 6 that really kind of hit a chord with me. And maybe it illuminated why I felt so badly about the circumstance that happened because it wasn't supposed to look like that. The church was not supposed to be showing up in the court experience. And 1 Corinthians 6 is a letter to the church of Corinth. It's written by the Apostle Paul. In the, uh, in, in the chapter prior to this passage, Paul is talking about uh, child incest and um, some pretty difficult circumstances that now move into this area of avoiding lawsuits and Christian with with Christians, and then it's moving into other sexual sins. So, in the middle of all of these really difficult kind of family dynamics or close knit community dynamics, is this passage about lawsuits and avoiding them? It says this in First Corinthians six. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says. When one of you has a dispute with the other believer, how dare you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of taking it to other believers? Paul moves on 
uh, later on and says, surely you should be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. If you have legal disputes about such matters, and he was speaking mostly to families, maybe more towards inheritances, but in general families, why would you go outside to judges who are not respected by the church? I am saying this to shame you, says Paul. Isn't there anyone at all within the church who is wise enough to decide these issues, but instead one believer sues another right in front of unbelievers. Even to have such lawsuits with one another is a complete defeat to you. Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourselves just be cheated? Guys, this is a really difficult passage to hear, especially being a licensed pastor myself, working in a church body and congregation. I didn't take this passage to heart as a leader of the church. And I don't think my childhood church understood its role and responsibility to resolve disputes for families. But it's very clear in this passage of 1 Corinthians 6 that Paul is speaking directly to the church who lost sight of their Christian values and adopted secular worldviews and made referrals to secular courts. This is not a picture of what biblical justice looks like among believers. In fact, when we think about the role as pastors or leaders of the church, one of our uh, primary messages is to go and make disciples, right? So we're out reaching people, but then it's um, creating discipleship processes to help guide and lead those that are, are following Jesus into a deeper, more meaningful relationship with him, that they know how to live out their faith and um, experience restoration. The church is all about restored life and reconciliation back to the Father, but then with one another. And so Christ, in the entire book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, instructs his disciples how to go out and model what Christ modeled for them. We know that Jesus um, had a high price to pay, right? There were eyewitness communal accounts of healing, freedom, and restored life. Yet the experience that Christ had led him to persecution, to oppression, and eventually his death. But that picture of discipleship in the book of Mark is designed for those to consider, am I going to follow Jesus or am I not? And as leaders in the church, we have to take this very seriously. Um, the text does not portray Jesus engaging in conflict for the purpose of winning. Rather, he engages with conflict, which is purposeful for opportunities for unity, peace, and reconciliation. This is threaded out through the entire Gospel of Mark. And that means that the readers of Mark's Gospel learn through Jesus' explanation that the cost of discipleship will ultimately lead them towards conflict and oppression and opposition. But Christ modeled his willingness to faithfully pursue his mission, and he remained victorious despite all that came against him in those final two chapters at the cross. For me, Christ's leadership carried restorative qualities. When we look at the book of Mark, readers learn of lives that were healed, they were restored through Christ's actions and his forgiveness. But there's a very poignant display of restorative leadership during the Last Supper. 
Christ models for the last time restorative leadership, knowing that betrayal, conflict, insults, and pain were coming. He took a Jewish traditional meal and he provided an intimate conversation in the face of adversity. He passed a cup, he passed bread to each disciple, he gave thanks, and he reminded them of their commitment as followers. You know, in this leadership act, this restorative leadership act, Jesus provided reconciliation and peace to his disciples before they even knew what was about to take place. So while Christ modeled discipleship, Mark portrayed the human tendencies that the earliest disciples abandoned their Lord. They fought for positions of rank. There was hardness of heart. And yet Mark shows at the very last, uh, the very last verse of 16.8, he shows a faithful group of female disciples that had effectively followed Christ just the way he modeled. And they overcame their, ter- their turmoil despite the opposition to follow Jesus. Well, when I think about what Christ's model for discipleship looks like in the book of Mark, and then I start looking at how we as believers are to recognize and understand our identity and call into discipleship, and this idea of faithful commitment to righteousness in the midst of pain and conflict, there's this interesting portrayal of restorative leadership within all of this action. And I just think those are really key attributes for those who want to administer and seek justice for God's people. When we think about 1 Corinthians 6, we need people who are administering ju- justice through a discipleship lens. This is front and center the work of the church. You know, when we look at the Acts 2 church, we also see an excellent example of believers sharing what they had, breaking bread together, meeting regularly, and growing in numbers. And this restorative leadership uh, portrayed by Jesus at the Last Supper is actually the main component of how the early church in Acts functioned. In Jewish culture, sitting around a table, eating, fellowship, encouragement, discipline, dealing with disputes and the managing of the growth of the church, it happened using restorative leadership techniques. Restorative techniques were not unusual because this was how they established a sense of social order within a group of people who shared similar values in everyday life activities. And yet disunity and lawsuits and conflict can certainly take over a community of believers when those kinds of key attributes are missing. However, I would say this is largely due to the negligence of church leaders. Another example of this um, within Paul's writing is, uh, it's actually not another example, but there's this really beautiful and interesting imagery that we can take note of when we think about the Greco-Roman culture and this against the model of Christ's discipleship. And now today, we see the secular culture, this still same model for discipleship that Christ gave us. We have the same problems (laughs) that existed way back in the uh, Church of Corinth's congregational care family conflict and lawsuits really became symptomatic of missing attributes attributes of modeling discipleship within church leadership. In 
uh, 1 Corinthians 6, we see sadly that the church leaders dismissed their responsibility to bring restorative leadership, to appoint wise leaders, to mediate disputes among the congregation. Paul is not saying the church leaders have to do it. They are simply to look and observe and appoint wise leaders to mediate disputes among the congregations. And yet when leaders compromise discipleship, there's a significant struggle to regain unity and reconciliation within the church walls. And then the clutch of the secular court orders dismiss the needs for all reconciliation and unity, which breaks down community, which has, which breaks down relationships. For me, Paul's language is so clear that when leaders take discipleship responsibility, they can appoint wise leaders who can manage significant disputes to maintain the unity of the church. And Paul offers affirmation, direction, and correction to us within the church when it comes to conflict, sin, and disputes. First of all, state-driven justice practices will divide churches. We saw the Greco-Roman social system found its way into the church culture and leadership in Paul's letter to the church of Corinth, but we see that today. The church lost sight of Christ's model of discipleship, and it allowed the influence of their social settings to advance wealth, rub shoulder with the elitists, um, the secular civic norms soaked into the fabric of their church community. And Paul was picking up on this breakdown of community within the church, moving from brotherly love, hospitality, and equality to an appetite of power, wealth, and domination over others. Guys, this is what I found. This is what I experienced in my childhood church, showing up in the court setting and advocating for justice to look like that which was in complete conflict with the values of the church and what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. I was heartbroken in this experience. And I would imagine there's a lot of other people who have felt this way too. Sadly, the church community and the relationships between believers really had become no different than the unbelieving community. And um, even more particularly when they were engaging with state-driven courts. Oh, so... Here's what I want to say. I think that when we hear about families struggling in our congregations, churches have an obligation to figure out who their wise leaders are and have them trained in family mediation to protect the the function of the church to be restorative in nature, to model and advocate for unity and discipleship, um, but also to provide an avenue for conflict resolution in families that is going to ultimately bring about peaceful resolution uh, because the values of the church are being upheld in the process itself. Guys, I just want to tell you today that Jen and I have poured our hearts out into transformative family mediation. We have designed this mediation training for the church. There is no other training available that I am aware of that has solely centered its philosophical and worldview lens on restorative leadership and what it looks like within the church. This is biblically inspired. We have 1 Corinthians 6 affirming what um, is needed in the church. And guys, this week and 
we'll probably keep going, especially for the church. It's 50% off of our training. It's a 40-hour court-approved training. You can have wise leaders trained and equipped to intervene in the lives of families and help them through divorce processes, or maybe they reconcile and they stop moving forward. Wouldn't it be amazing if these families never had to touch the courts? You could also engage families in your community. This is beautiful to have a process that's alternative, that it's approved by the courts. The courts have approved this. In fact, this is what they want for families and the church must play a central role. Guys, I'm just gonna encourage you to go to our website, thecatalassogroup.com. You'll see all the promotionals. It's 50% off, 40 hour family mediation training. It's currently 549 for an entire week of training. We've got three more trainings coming up in 2022. We also have restorative leadership training, which is $199. But we're gonna leave that open to you, church and those that are interested in this, it does not matter if you live in another state. If you are working with families directly in your congregation that are not going to go to the court anyway, it doesn't matter. You don't have to have a certification for that particular state unless you actually want to receive referrals from the court. That's when that would be important. And so guys, I'm just going to encourage you to get trained. Um, This is an undeniably um, confrontational scripture that we as believers should take very seriously. So I'm going to leave you with that and we'll touch base with you again soon. I hope you have a great week and uh, welcome to December in a couple of days, friends. Take care.